Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends, and welcome back to another episode. And this one, we will be touching on the wines of Slovenia. So may I introduce you, my guest, wine writer Chris Boiling, who you can find his work in Decanter and other online wine magazines, and more recently, a wine newsletter called Canopy, which you can find on the International Wine Challenge website. Now, the reason we are talking about Slovenia is because Chris has bought a home with a small vineyard there and it's inspired all kinds of wine projects. In fact, if you've ever read articles on jancesrobinson.com, you may have seen him chronicling his disasters in a column called Diary of a Dream. So we are certainly going to be touching on some winemaking techniques and mistakes Chris has made on the way. We will look at some interesting grape varieties like Lasky Riesling, Rafosk and Rebula. You'll learn about some indigenous varieties of Slovenia alongside the three main wine regions of this country. I'll be trying Chris's very unique and interesting Pinot Gris. So if you are ready for some wine stories and of course wine education, let's go over to the chat now. I have to start with a very important question. How and why did you decide to buy a vineyard in Slovenia? I'm going to get right to the point here. <laughs> um, I was looking to buy a property abroad because I'd sort of reached that age. Uh, the children had left home. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd finished paying my mortgage in England and I wanted to... Uh, buy a property for sort of investment for the future because I didn't really have a pension. Mm-hmm. And then right at the bottom of this sort of newsletter that I got was a wine house in Slovenia for, it was about 18,000 euros. Okay. I thought, oh, that's interesting. So <laughs> I clicked on the button uh-huh. and it took me to a few other places. Um, we went out and looked at four. Yeah, just fell in love with one. It needed less work than the others. One of them was about a 200-year-old straw-built property with an outside oh toilet. God. No heating a, then. <laughs> no, on a very steep vineyard. Um, Not great for retirement. Not good for no. those knees. <laughs> it was a bit too steep and yeah, uh-huh. it wasn't quite right, especially the outside toilet put us off. But the property we ended up with... <laughs> had everything really it was a bit run down but it was Mm. livable Mm -hmm. and also it was 50 minutes from ski slopes so we thought oh that's that gives us another sort of lifestyle option Mm -hmm. and it was a beautiful area it was easy to remember because it's called jerusalem (laughs) with the spelling and the pronunciation of slovenian wine yes i would go with that one too yeah (laughs) And, uh, you know, they told us the story about the Crusaders on their way to the Holy Land. They got a bit sort of waylaid by the wine in the region, you know, which had been making wine from, well, since before the Romans. And, mm. uh, yeah, they thought they'd uh, reached the Promised Land. So I thought, well... Yeah, you better stay there, right? 
Yeah, but uh, oh, the estate, no, well, the estate agent, he was actually very honest and we liked him because he said, don't buy a house with a vineyard. He said, buy a property overlooking someone else's vineyard, then you can enjoy the views, you can go down to the supermarket, you'll buy something better and cheaper than you'll ever make. Hmm. But that doesn't said, sound no. fun though, does it? Yeah, I thought, that, 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 precisely, you know, where's the fun in that? I want to, you know, get stuck into it i mean you've got to make decisions you regret right well yeah well yeah there's been a few you know i was so naive i didn't think that buying a vineyard in a country where you didn't speak the language when you didn't know anything about wine would be a problem well yeah if only you bought an english vineyard back then i don't well, think. Yeah, but I couldn't afford it it was a different price even back yes, then i mean even back then mm-hmm. 12 13 years ago mm-hmm. so uh, land in slovenia was the half that's closest to italy was was almost as expensive as Italy, but mm-hmm. the other side, the eastern side, which is closer to sort of the Croatian and Hungarian borders, was a lot cheaper. So I thought, oh yeah, well hopefully with time it will somehow even itself up. The reputation building. Yeah, that mm-hmm. east-west split will sort of diminish. I don't think it has, but... Um, I think there's still time. I mean, you, you've got Austria that people really know about, and of course we've already talked about Italy, but the fact that it's wrapped around also by Hungary and Croatia. This seems, I don't know, this has got to be the next the next region. Do we say that a lot with the wine world? This is the region. This is the year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I think people have been saying that ever since I bought the place or what I've been hoping. Oh, yeah, no. Slovenian wine is really good. You know, it's, um, it's up and coming. And people who have tasted it always really like it. And, you know, it's got a good reputation for both, you know, the classic wines, but also the, the funky stuff. Mm-hmm. So I thought, no, and it's a small country. So I thought, yeah, it's really got potential and it's a beautiful country. It's really green. And I'm sort of uh, 50 minutes from the Austrian border, 40 minutes from the Hungarian border and 30 minutes from the Croatian border and probably about two and a half hours uh, from the Italian border. You know. Now that's cool. That gives you a lot of options for holidaying. In the it does, yeah, I mean, Venice is like four hours away. Budapest is like three and a half Vienna's like three and a half. Everybody, are you listening to this, right? Okay, holiday, trip to this wine region. You can pop along to everywhere else as well. Can we talk about where you are? You're in Jerusalem, (laughs) the the Slovenian Jerusalem, which is part of which main wine region? So that's in Podravia. You know how I I got you to say that because I didn't want to do the pronunciation. Well, I I don't know if it's right or not. I just, you know. You might have heard it once or twice, I Yeah, even though I hear it, you know, I... I'm not so good with the languages, so any of my pronunciation in this podcast, you know, ignore it and go with your own versions. We apologise in advance for the terrible pronunciation. So, Podravia, you're going with Podravia. Let's let's stick with that. that. So, I always look at Slovenia as sort of a bit like a chicken shape, with the tail (laughs) with the tail towards the left. And I am up in sort of the northeast, which is sort of like where the head is, Mm -hmm. and sort of down towards the mouth. That's where Jerusalem is, basically. Well, actually, they call it Jerusalem. Ah, there you go. So you do know Jerusalem. But so now I remember hearing that the oldest grapevine in the world is in Podravia. Do you know where it is? Yes, in in Maribor, yeah. Okay, all right. How far is that? Uh, There's 50 minutes. That's where the ski slopes are. Oh, awesome. So you can go a bit of skiing and see the oldest 
vine. I yeah. talked about this yeah. on one of my podcasts in the past, like, you know, the most extreme vineyards or whatever. And I mentioned that the oldest vine was there, but I couldn't remember. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah, so it's in Maribor. It's on the outside of a wine shop and museum. Great for the tourists. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And it's a beautiful stretch where you can walk along the river and they often have festivals there, food and wine festivals. So now Maribor is definitely worth a visit and they have some beautiful vineyards sort of right behind the town. So let's get back to your vineyard though. So I want to know a bit more about your journey. So I know that, and other people who are signed up to Jancis Robinson's website, there is the Diary of a Dream. Is that what it's called? Yes, it's basically my nightmare. <laughs> so you got it wrong with the dream part. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was it was a dream, but um, at the first at the first point. But it, yeah, things just kept going wrong. But I oh. didn't mind because it gave me a good story for the column. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. every time I had a disaster with a vintage or I did something stupidly wrong, um, <laughs> I would just laugh about it. Oh, that's quite funny. I'll use that in the column for Jancis. But um, but it didn't help with the wine. So now, so this, so you had this column, and you were writing about your journey making wine. How many years did you make wine before you actually released something? Because I, of course, I have a bottle in front of me, which we're going to taste in a second. Everyone, calm down. But I have this bottle. But is it officially released? Because there's no label on it. Is this the no, first one? No. So I'm still waiting for the certification. I was hoping to release it in February, um, mm-hmm. but you know, we'll do it when the the label's ready. As you'll see, it's an unusual wine. But what <laughs> happened was it took me probably 10 years working on this little vineyard that I purchased. Now, mm-hmm. I think the thing is, I'm not there enough to really look after the vines mm. or to look after the wine when I've made it. And it took yes. me a while to realise that actually from that little spot, I mean, it's only half a hectare of vines, but it's a a uh, little wine house that's got everything. It's got a, you know, a, a brick arch cellar underneath. It's got cool. uh, a little room next to the kitchen with a, a wooden basket press. I know. Oh, that's the, cool. And the plastic tubs for you know treading grapes <laughs> and and all the equipment's there, but in you know micro scale. And you know, it, even though the press room is sort of like above the garage and the cellar is next to the garage, you know, once time I thought, well, yes, I can call myself a garageista. You know, that type <laughs> yeah. of. Well, you kind of can. And because I was using EasyJet a lot to fly there you know, from my home near Brighton. I thought, yeah, no, maybe I'm a flying winemaker. And then I <laughs> eventually realised that actually oh, no, no, I'm, ju- I'm just a hobbyist. Oh, you know, no. Okay. This is just an expensive hobby and I'm never going to make the quality of wine that I had in my head when I started out this venture. You know, I mm-hmm. thought, okay, I'm you know, going to make the best wine ever because I think Perhaps we all think that when we start out. And then I realised, no, actually, I need to put a lot more attention into the, the land, the grapes and everything. So my next strategy, once I'd realised this, was to use the, the expert winemakers that I'd met on my journey, you know, the people okay. I respected and admired, team up with them, inspire them to do something different you know, I'm in my current job talking to winemakers around the world, you know, interviewing them for articles. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'm soaking up all this knowledge. Maybe, you know, I can sort of pass it on to these people and get them to say, well, you know, what about if we did this? What about if we did that? You know, how have you thought about doing this? So that's how this wine started. It was an experiment. 
I mean, do you want to go on to, the, to talk about this winer? So let's talk about the Pinot Gris. So let me ask you, have you planted any other grape varieties there? No. So my grapes, it's um, a field blend. They're probably 60-year-old vines. Okay. Uh, it's mostly Lashky Rieslin and Chipon, which is their ferment, and okay. with a little bit of Tremina and Yellow Muscat. And usually I don't have any Tremina because the deer get to them first. Um, so it's mostly... <laughs> sort of Lashky Rieslin. And, you okay. know, and when I bought the house, you know, and I asked what the grape variety was, I heard Rieslin and assumed he was talking about Rieslin. And I thought, oh, okay, that'd be quite nice. But Lashky Rieslin is not related at all to Rieslin. Completely different. I mean, it's a workhorse variety in Central Europe. It's, you know, known as Welsh Riesling or Riesling Italica or Grashevina in um, Croatia. Um, or Olaf Rieslin in Hungary. Yeah, just to um, confuse things. <laughs> yeah, so completely different names, but most of them mean sort of foreign Riesling. Yeah. Well, I mean, Grashvina is a premium wine in Croatia. It's there sort of okay. one of their flagship yeah. varieties. And, you know, in the 1970s, it was one of the most exported wines to the UK when it was, you know, made under um, Tito's Yugoslavia, you know, Lutomalashki. And okay. Lutomar is the town that's about 10 minutes from Jerusalem so ah, okay. but but it but the problem was like a lot of things you know it gave it a cheap and cheerful wine so mm-hmm. a lot of winemakers in Slovenia don't put a lot of effort into it because they can't get a lot for it it's the table wine it's the wine you might turn into a spritzer with a bit of sparkling water it's that yeah. type of wine you know yeah. so you're never going to get much money for it so why put a lot of effort into it mm. but um there are two producers in the Podravia region which make an excellent Lashky Rislin one is okay. Maroff Mm-hmm. And we'll come across that name again later because he's one of the, the guys I really rate. Okay. And the other one is Leon Gurkish. And so the story of this Pinot Grigio is that when I went along to discuss his Lashky Rieslin and why it's so good, what he does to it, so I could learn from him and maybe pick up a few tips, he introduced me to his, his experimental Lashky Rieslin where he'd kept stirring the lees for a long time. He'd stir it uh, four days before he racked the wine. Okay. And then, so it would settle, but it wouldn't totally settle. And he kept mm-hmm. doing this. And then he bottled it with the very finest lees and just okay. gave it a really nice creamy texture. And he mm-hmm. put it on the bottle, you know, shake and aerate before pouring. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... It was a really cool idea, and I really loved the flavour. I mean, I don't think it was going to be an easy sell for him, but it was something different. And, you know, I don't mind a cloudy wine. Um, So I was really interested in that approach. And then I told him about some experiments that I'd been doing. I'd bought some Riesling and some... Some actual Riesling. (laughs) Yes, and they call it Rhine Riesling there. Okay, okay. And some proper Riesling and some Pinot Grigio. So I bought just uh, 100 kilos of of each um, Uh just to play with them because I, Mm. I, you know, with my half hectare, I don't actually have that much. And I like to sort of play and, you know, use some of these um, techniques that I picked up along the way. But usually I don't have enough grapes to play with. So 
I thought, right, I'll, I'll play with these two, and especially with the Pinot Grigio, because it's uh, a great variety that I'm always disappointed in. Usually with the wines, I just find them bland, uninteresting. Yeah, but it is a noble grape, and, you know, yeah. it's a mm-hmm. natural mutation from Pinot Noir. So I thought, is there a way that we can bring out the Pinot Noir side of Pinot Grigio? What can we do to really show the grape's full potential? And so I started experimenting and I, I was pleased with the taste, but I couldn't get the colour to hold. It started off a really nice colour, but then the sort of pink, the, the green side of it just sort of fell away. Okay. Um, you know, dropped out with all the, the sediment and everything else. Mm. Whereas this Leon Gurkish, when we went through some of his other wines, his Pinot Grigio was this beautiful copper colour and I got to talking to him about how he kept the colour and you know I told him about my experiments and then when I went back in the spring he had done my experiment he had a barrel marked PG Chris which PG. was makes me think of PG tips but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so PG Chris and uh, and it was my experiment but he'd done it and he'd looked after it oh and that's nice and it tasted fantastic. I, I really liked it. Uh, the colour, okay. I don't know if you've opened it yet, but the colour, I really liked the colour. Okay. I'm going to pour it. I'm going to pour it. I okay. And what, do you, to, wait. what do you think to the colour? Oh, well, you, if you're worried about the colour, there's some real depth in there, isn't there? Do you yeah. know, so yes, I mean, this is going quite ambery and now unfortunately my lights are on so I haven't got the most perfect but is there actually a little bit of a kind of pinkishy tinge to it yeah yeah but yeah there's there's real there is color a Mm -hmm. real unusual color I I think it's sort of copper colored Mm. and I think his version is quite an onion colored sort of towards the red onion side of things. So we did it. Unfortunately, we couldn't get hold of bottles because <laughs> there was only one barrel full. Uh-huh. They didn't want to supply, well, no one was that interested in supplying 300 bottles, you know, so I was way down the list waiting. So we did spend longer in the oak than perhaps we originally intended. And even though it's third-use oak, um, I think more of the oak has come out, but then it does hit the what we wanted, what the experiment was, was to show a completely different side of Pinot Grigio. We're so, just smelling, we're just smelling the nose. There's a real nice kind of Brazil nut character and then this kind of very slightly herby sourdough. And I guess that that is coming from that slightly extra extended oak usage. And I always find when I speak with winemakers over and over again a consistent thing when I taste some small batch wine limited edition wine is I say oh so why did you come up with this and they say oh well um bit of an accident really (laughs) (laughs) always that they couldn't they didn't have enough space there there was overflow of grapes they had to move it into a weird vessel they had to blend it because of this etc etc so you are another prime example of producing something that has turned out rather lovely but was not necessarily the intention well it was the intention to show a completely different side (laughs) but I you know, the trend is to have less 
obvious oak, sort of something a bit more subtle, perhaps, on mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the oak front. You say that, but for me, I mean, amber wine and orange wine is generally, I think, a specific taste anyway, because it always has that slightly more kind of bitterness. But from smelling this, you've still got that kind of dried orange peel, or like that kind of rind and even like a slight caramelized apple on the nose. So it, it is slightly, there's a slight oxidative character, but this is all the things that I would expect from an orange wine. So I'm going to, I'm obviously now going to have to taste it. <laughs> um, I tell you what, I like the palate more than the nose. Lots of fruit going on in there. I expected it to not be, but it's still very, very savoury at the same time. Lots of kind of structure, quite yeasty. Um, lots of dried fruits, though, when I say kind of fruity. And this kind of like, like the tannins are almost like a, like a tickle of peach skins. But what I have to say with all the concentration of fruits is actually also how fresh it is. So very interesting and not as crazy and funky and weird as I was expecting it to be. (laughs) That's nice to hear. Yeah. Because it's difficult when you produce something that is a bit different. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. you, You just don't know. I mean, I like it, but a lot of people, you know... I don't think it's to everyone's taste. But the important thing, you know, the whole reason for doing this experiment was to see, you know, if it's a wine or Pinot Grigio you've ever tasted before. Have you tasted anything like this before? No, not really. And and to be honest, this has got a lot more kind of structure and savouriness than I would expect. I've left this out of the fridge for an hour because I expected with an orange wine, it, it shouldn't be too cold. Um, and I think right now as well, it's still, it's medium bodied. It's not really big and bold, but there's this lovely kind of texture to it as well. So I think, I mean, this is, this would be an absolutely great food wine. If you're not an orange wine lover, no, it's not going to be for you. But I actually think, you know, the tannins are in line, the fruits are in balance, the structure, it's good. This is, you know, a have this with some like, I don't know, grilled halloumi and some like spiced couscous, something like that maybe. Mm. But it's also got a bit of a sherry vibe, a little sherry vibe because there's that slight oxidative character. So even just a little tapas load of uh, olives and salted nuts and, you know, just a little and a bit of hamon could work beautifully or some smoky babagounash. Anyway. Cool. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I wondered if the oxidative notes are because it is very low on SO2. So, Ad, do you think it's changed slightly from when you've tasted it last? Yeah, because I didn't get any of that. I mean, I haven't tasted it for a while because I didn't... Now you're going to have to open up another bottle. Yeah, I didn't bring many bottles back to the UK, Mm -hmm. uh, just a few for for samples, but I need to go back to Slovenia. No, you're supposed to say... A few for special people. A few for special people, that's oh, thank right. You. Oh, Chris. That, oh, you should. <laughs> yeah, no, for very special people. Oh, VIP tasters. <laughs> Obviously, people who've got great taste. So, no, I wasn't oh, sure. Stop it now. I was very nervous about, um, you know, you're actually the first person oh, to try okay. it. Oh, no, oh, actually, wow. sorry, I lied. Oh, the, the second yeah. person, I took it to. Um, the waiter at the local restaurant down the road from me in Slovenia. And um, I said, you know, I've just produced this. 
And, you know, we've been going there for years and he knows my little crazy experiments. And I said, <laughs> I produced this. He said, what is it? I said, it's a Pinot Grigio. He said, oh, no, 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 I don't want to taste a Pinot Grigio. <laughs> I said, well, this is very different. You know, just try. He said, well, I gave him a bottle and he said he would open it when he had some sort of connoisseur friends in. And now a few weeks later... I saw him and he had opened it with them and, yeah, they told him to water the garden with it. Oh, <gasps> uh, well, So okay. that's why I was a bit nervous about your No, sort of the reaction. thing is, I am not a massive orange wine fan. I'm not. And I would never choose specifically to drink orange wines. Occasionally I am surprised. Um, but what I like about this at the end of the day is it's kind of a mix. It's interesting because you're saying not the oxidative note, but... It leaves this kind of sourdoughy, yeasty texture in my mouth. So again, a little bit of salinity, savory nature. And so actually, the finish of the wine is very Moorish and quite yummy. So it kind of makes me want to go back for a little bit more. And so that's quite inviting, you know, and it's a classic orange wine in my opinion in terms of what I would expect with the structure and the tannins um, and that slight bitterness is there any available for people to purchase no well I'm hoping to bring some in and it would be about 15 pound okay uh, my god okay I thought you were going to say like because it's small production 25 30 and then I was going to say okay and then not make any comment for 15 pound yeah that's absolutely I don't want to be left with any because there's not a lot of (laughs) SO2 in it so um I am talking to a a restaurant at the end of the month um okay which I've suggested to them that it'd be a perfect pairing with cigars. Ah. Okay. And they have well, a cigar said, like, lounge. Smoky grill, you know, yeah. grilled halloumi, smoky, smoky babagoo, nash, smoky stuff. I see how that works. Well, that, that was my thought. When I tasted it, I thought, mm-hmm. oh, I couldn't think of any food pairings, but I thought, oh, maybe a cigar. And it's got the sort of cigar colours and some, I don't know, maybe the smokiness to it. I thought, oh, maybe that would go well with a cigar. This is so. this is cool. And I think for actually for anybody listening as well, when they're kind of not, they've never gone on the orange wine journey, what you're talking about now with cigars, my food pairings, that description I've given of that wine, actually, you know, th- th- this is kind of, if people are thinking, mm, what is orange wine? What should it taste like? Hopefully that is, you know, at least a, a bit of an eye opener for, for anybody listening. How interesting, if people are so desperate after listening to this episode, and they're like, I've got to try and see if I can get a bottle. They can go to your website, right? Yeah, why wine with the letter Y, wine.press, yeah. Or they can send me an email at whywine.press at outlook.com. Perfect. Yeah, I'm assuming only UK though, sadly. Yes, at the moment, or obviously... Or Slovenia. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no worries at all. Um, I'm in the UK, it's fine. So going back to Slovenia, I want people to end this episode, obviously knowing a little bit more about your crazy projects, but to know about Slovenia. So we've talked about Podravia, which is in the more eastern side. And this is a region that's great for white wines, typically. Yes. So, I mean, I think... People may be more familiar with Styria, which is part exactly, of it. Exactly, on the other okay. And so they think about Styria and, you know, Sauvignon Blancs from Austria. And this region is also uh, very good for Sauvignon Blanc. But also the flagship variety for this region is Ferment, or they call it Schiphol. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very different to the Hungarian Tokai Ferment, I think. And I prefer Why? it. Why? How? Okay. Well, it's always very... Bone dry. I mean, some of the ones I've tasted from Tokai, they have a little 
residual sugar. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Obviously, the soils are very different. You've got the volcanic soils in Tokai and more sort of clay and loam and sandy soils in Jerusalem. And okay. I do wonder if there's a different clone. For me, they're quite different, but I prefer the ferment uh, from Slovenia. Would you say ferment from Slovenia is um, a little bit more linear then? Maybe yeah. a bit crisper and directional? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Or maybe it's, it's what I'm used to, but it's the residual sugar that I don't like from Tokai. And they seem to have been going that way, making it more commercial, um, making it less austere and putting a bit of residual, well, leaving some residual sugar there. But uh, that for me is the flagship variety in the northeast of Slovenia. And the Sauvignon okay. Blanc's really good from there. And okay. basically all, all the aromatic whites that you can think so Riesling, of. So Riesling, yeah, Riesling, Tremina, Pinot Gris mm -hmm. and Pinot Noir. Okay, Pinot Noir is made there. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. What do you think of the Pinot Noir from that region? Um, it's made all over the country, but I, I like it. There are a few good producers. I have two rows of Pinot Noir in, in my <laughs> okay. vineyard, but it's sort of a classic example of, yeah, the grapes were never as healthy as I'd like them to be for, you know, the extended maceration. So. Yeah. The one time when I made it as a rosé, I was really pleased with it. It was one of the best okay, roses. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it I, I've well ever, for that. you know, that I've ever tasted, and one of the best wines that I made there. But you know, I never got it to work as a red wine. You know, it's yeah. too so much volatile acidity. And I like the smell of um, nail varnish, but um, <laughs> other people describe it as a fault. But no, I, I quite like. I could sniff nail varnish. So you mentioned that Pinot Noir does grow all over the country and obviously yeah. here in, in the northeast, but it is primarily a white wine region. Is yeah. this the coldest region across Slovenia? I suppose it's, you know, there is the influence of the Alps. Mm -hmm. And also the Jerusalem wine hills are the last hills really. As you sort of like flow down from the Alps and you reach the Pannonian Plain in Hungary, mm -hmm. these are the last sort of like trickles of hills before you go to the flat area in Hungary. So it's not, I mean, they still seem to have the four seasons there. And as I said, you still have the snow in winter, you still have skiing. Yeah. It's a continental climate, I guess, ultimately Yeah, it's continental. Anyway. Whereas mm -hmm. at the western side, closer to Italy, you've got some influence from the Adriatic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that sort of region is, is nicely positioned with the influence from the Adriatic and the Alps. And this is the region that actually probably most people know about if they've ventured into yeah. Slovenian wine, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. Primorska. Mm -hmm. um, especially two of the sub-regions there, um, the Vipava Valley. There's some really good Pinot Noir from there, but other varieties okay. as well. Okay. But also Gorishka Berda which is right next to Collio. Verda exactly. and Collio mean mm -hmm. the same thing. And Collio, of course, are incredible, those wines. Yeah. So you've got reds from that region, but also all the orange wines as well. And they do Rebula wines there. Yes. So whereas Ferment is the flagship variety for the sort of eastern half of Slovenia, Rebula or Rebola Jala is... Uh, mm -hmm the main white variety and the flagship variety for the western side, especially Grishka Berda. What does that taste like for anybody, the wines that you tasted of Rebula over there? 
I think it's so different because because quite often it's used for the extended skin contact wine, and so the, the it's orange wine. So it's hard, you know. There's less of the variety in it. You know, it's more the the technique. And one of the reasons this is such a hotbed for orange wines is that Rabula has quite a thick skin. Okay. So when people were pressing it in the wooden basket presses, you know, it would slip around and it would fall out. But if you soaked it for a bit, it became softer and easier to press. Mm. Now, there is a theory that maybe that's why this region is you know, part of the birthplace for the extended skin contact wines, just out of necessity, out of you okay. know, practicality. So it's, it's one thought. But yeah, yeah no, I think it's a, it's a lovely grape and produces lovely wines. And you can get the fresh uh, versions and you can get the skin contact ones. And I like them either way. And also um, sparkling wines made from Rabula are really good as well. Well, and you say that. I've seen Rabula blended a lot of the time as well. So it's actually yeah. quite hard as a, you know, as a grape variety yeah. to just pinpoint what's all the fruits yeah. and what's the exact style that it is yeah mm-hmm. and there are some really good sweet wines as well there you go from it. yeah they, Does it all? it's a very versatile grape mm, i think it's okay. probably similar to to a lot of the ones from that region you know the friulano as well you know they're quite versatile and i just like all those grapes from that region you know whether it's on the, yeah. the italian side or the slovenian side and I suppose if you don't like those grape varieties or you're too scared to have them, you can just have Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay or Merlot, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which grow there? Yeah. I mean, the red one that's uh, of interest is Turan. Ah, yes. Okay. Can you explain Turan? So Turan, yeah, it's the, the red one. It's Rafoshk. I mean, it's quite a controversial grape in that region because uh, in Croatia, it's Turan. Mm-hmm. But in Slovenia, it's Rafoshk. But when Rafoshk is grown on the red soil, the cast soil, it's called Terrano. So there okay. were lots of disputes between Croatia and Slovenia about, you know, the name and whether <laughs> Croatia could call it Terran. But, you know, uh, Slovenia were protective over the Terrano uh, wine from the cast region. Um, okay, so Croatia but, are not allowed to. Did they get permission? No, I think they, they did eventually oh, okay. mm-hmm. win the right to keep calling theirs Terran. But it was controversial when Croatia were applying to join the EU, which they Mm. have now done. Mm. But uh, it's a sore subject there, whether it's similar or not. Some people say it's the same grape and some people say it's not. It could be also the clone conversation as well. Mutations over the years, movement, for sure. But I mean, I haven't tasted a Rafosk for years, but I just remember they've got great acidity and lots of berry fruit and they're not too heavy is yeah. that still the style that yeah and really making? good color as well yeah mm, okay yeah, nice right. deep color no I, okay. I like it and some of the blends with the cabernet sauvignon and merlot with a bit of refosh just to give it a bit of sort of local identity i think work really well Okay, interesting. Now, we've talked about Primorska, so that is the yeah. most well-known region to the west. We've talked about where you're ba- based in yeah. Jerusalem, which is part of the Podravie region to the northeast. Then we have yeah. one other wine region. Pasavia. Yes, mm-hmm. down in the mm-hmm. sort of central south. Now, there are some good producers there. Istanich produces some really good uh, sparkling wines okay, and there's a yeah. guy right down sort of like in you know if we go back to the chick in the front foot um, <laughs> yeah. 
Cruz. <laughs> I he, love your little... He specialises <laughs> in um, yellow muscat. Ah, uh, yes, okay. Yeah, mm. and, and he makes all different styles. I think it has like seven versions of yellow muscat down there. Wow, okay. And there are also some good Blau Frankish from there. Ah, yes, okay. Mm-hmm. But it's best known for a really strange wine Svicek. Okay, Svicek. It's been produced there for like 250 years. It's a mixture of red and white grapes. It's really acidic, probably 70% red grapes, 30% white grapes, a blend, sort of 8-9% alcohol and really acidic. Um, I'm not sure if you're selling it to me. No, it's an acquired taste. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like it? No. I thought with all that acidity, it'd be really good to somehow upgrade it and turn it into a sparkling wine. I could see a sparkling version, but uh, it's they sell millions of bottles to the locals. You know, they've acquired this taste. Mm, How much would that cost? A bottle of oh, this. Oh, it's really cheap. I think like three or four euros, you know, in the local oh, supermarket. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. Worth a try then. No, you wouldn't want it. But I mean... No, it's not worth a try. No. Well, no, I think you should try it. Drink with caution. Because <laughs> it is one of those wines, you know, it's a strange colour because it is this mixture of, you know, red and white grapes. It is quite a pale red wine, but low alcohol and highly acidic. Yeah. Okay. It's... Works as a palate cleanser. Well, I heard in this wine region that they make good rosés. Maybe I'll just stick with that. Well, yeah, and they have some interesting grape varieties as well. Uh, so, uh, yeah, let's talk about indigenous varieties. What, yeah, what are the ones that maybe we should look out for? I know you've already mentioned, obviously, Rafosk and we've mentioned Rebula. Yeah, well, I think the main two are from the, for me, the main two are from the Vipava Valley, uh, Zelen mm-hmm. and Pinella sort of both um, quite light uh, white wines, really just refreshing, quite pleasant, easy drinking, but, you know, special because they just really grow in this valley. Wow, okay. There are a couple of others, um, Renina and Ramfol from the northeast region. Renina works in sparkling wines. I've had tried some good ones there, Um, but I haven't yet tasted a really good Ramfol. You know, it's mm. it's just very neutral, very, yeah, not much to it, no complexity. Okay. So, yeah, there are, I mean, I always thought that for wine tourism, Slovenia is the perfect country because, you know, you have good examples of all the international varieties. You can find good Sauvignon Blanc, good Pinot Gris, good Chardonnay, good Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignons. And then you have the regional varieties like Blau Frankish, uh, Rabula, Ferment, even Lashki Rislin. And you have a few indigenous varieties that you can't taste anywhere else like Zelen and Pinella. Mm, okay. Well, that's something for everyone to kind of keep an eye out for, especially these ones that you've never tasted. Now, to finish off, you mentioned a few producers. Is there just anything for somebody on their journey of Slovenia that you, from from your journeys and your meeting of winemakers, that somebody has to try or somebody should know about? I think if you're going to try one wine from Slovenia, it has to be one from Movia. Okay, okay. He is a crazy wine maker. <laughs> he's such a character, but his wines are just so distinctive. And especially Puro, which is his sparkling wine. Okay. I've never tried a sparkling wine like I've never 
bad one. Why? But How is it Because different? when he pours it, I mean, he opens it in uh, an ice bucket filled with water. It It's not disgorged. So you buy it upside okay, cloudy. down. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. All the sediment sinks to the neck and then you open it. And you just do it under, like quickly. Fl- oh, yeah. under, okay. You open it. Well, under- he does it in an ice bucket filled with water. Oh, so it's his way of kind of freezing the leaves? Well, maybe it makes slightly less mess than if you just... If it was too warm. ...disgorge it yourself. Yeah. Okay. So it's upside down and then he pours it. But what's incredible is the bubbles don't float to the top. They just sit there in layers. What? Or the, the, the wine I had, they're just so sort of <laughs> concentrated in the wine that they just... Huh. They're just there in layers, almost like they've been set in jelly. Wow, that's interesting. So he makes the wine, it's sort of the base wine, like four years old, and then he tops it up with the fermenting juice from the latest season. So that's how you get the bubble. So it's not as sparkly as some other wines. Yeah, less pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. a less pressure. Um, But I just think, you know, it's slightly crazy, which I quite like, but it's so distinctive. I mean, once tried, you you don't forget it. Especially if you see him, you know, open it for you and you go to his place and he chooses the right music. He might even sort of sit at the piano and play for you while he's, you're sipping. You know, he's... he's um, oh, I love that. He's got a cult following in America. Ah, okay. Alex Kristancic. But, he, yeah, he's... You know, they talk about winemaking gods, but he's, I think, Slovenia's answer to that. He's, oh, okay. he's quite a character, and but his wines do live up to the hype. Okay. So, yeah, if you're looking there for you one, go. either mine or his. <laughs> the choice is yours. The wine gods of Slovenia. <laughs> well, not wine gods. No, no. <laughs> no, no. Moving on. Oh, bless I, I'm, you. I'm, yeah, a wannabe. <laughs> I want to be wine <laughs> Oh, dearie me. Just as crazy, but... Well, the best people are always crazy. Oh, that makes me think of Alice in Wonderland when, in response to the Mad Hatter's question, have I gone mad? Alice replies, I'm afraid so. You're entirely bonkers, but I will tell you a secret. All the best people are... I personally love that quote, as I think I use it to justify my own (laughs) behaviour. Now, I want to touch on the method of sparkling wine without using a glycol bath, freezing ice water that Chris just touched on, as it's quite interesting that still today, there are some people disgorging which means the removal of the lees. So this is the natural yeast and the sediment that was inside the bottle of the sparkling wine. But they are removing it without freezing it. So by freezing the neck of the bottle, which contains that yeast, you turn this into effectively a frozen plug. And then when you turn it upright and you crack open the crown cap, seal it's going to fly out all neat and tidy well more or less well there is the manual process so this is quite an ancient process obviously and it would be called disgorgement a la volée so this translates to on the fly basically meaning flying disgorgement. So you are just relying on the pressure force of the sparkling wine to shoot out the yeast that has been collected in the neck of the bottle. And you're just hoping that you're going to lose as little wine as possible. 
As mentioned by Chris, this does still happen, but typically it will be in very small wineries. Right, so next week, Chris will be taking us across to Georgia, the cradle of wine, the cradle of viticulture. Why? Because this is where some of the oldest wine vessels have been found. So we will be looking at some very interesting grape varieties in general, as Chris has another crazy wine project he's going to tell us all about. You're gonna love those that are bonkers. <laughs> and then we will be discussing amber wines and of course the quiveries. This is the clay pots that are buried in the ground. I know I already brought a quote to the table today, but I'm feeling generous. So here is another one. We are all mortal until the first kiss and the second glass of wine, said by Eduardo Galliano. Right, that is it, wine friends, over for another week. Before you go off in search for a bottle of Slovenian wine, don't forget that just a few moments to leave me a review on Apple Podcast or a rating on Spotify will make this podcast far more discoverable and it's the best way you can show your appreciation for these episodes. So like the podcast, share with your wine-loving friends, I hope this week is an inspiring one and you become one step closer to achieving everything that you've set out for for this year. Until next week, cheers to you.